We have a special guest in studio. As we know, on January 29th, it's Bell Let's Talk. And it's Bell Let's Talk Day. And through this, through this day, it's an opportunity to have discussions, talk about meaningful action to create positive change. It's about removing the stigmas around mental health. It's about talking about mental health. It's about inspiring other people, inspiring them with your stories. And someone in our community who has been sharing stories around mental health journeys for a while now is Janice Arnaldi. Her show is on 610 CKTB at noon on Sundays, Life Unscripted. And each week she shines a light on the issues surrounding mental health and addiction. And she does it through stories. And it's stories with people who have lived these experiences. And again, Bell Let's Talk is is January 25th. I may have said 29th, but it's the 25th. And it's coming up. And so wanted to have Janice come on and share her journey because on her show, she's asking the questions. She's talking to people in our community, talking to those with lived experience, talking to those who provide services. But she's never really had an opportunity to be the one necessarily answering the questions and it's important because she's she has a journey and so welcome to the show Janice welcome thanks for coming in today thank you it's really really nice to be back in studio it does feel nice to be back in the studio and you're on the board of directors for the Niagara the Greater Niagara Chamber of Commerce you've been a part of Quest Community Health Centre for a while now and you're a former board member of the Canadian Mental Health Association I say that because you've you're very involved in the community. You've also been past chair of the Women in Wellness fundraising dinner, and that raised more more than $350,000 for Canadian mental health. And it shows your commitment to something that you've lived through for your entire life. And so take us through the 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 early journey of, of and I believe it, you have, it's bipolar disorder? Yeah, I have bipolar one disorder, um, which is sort of the higher more severe level of bipolar of bipolar disorder. I always call it manic depression. That's what it was. I was diagnosed as originally in the early nineties, and uh, um, so I'm going to say that off the top. Then I'll talk about bipolar. I always felt that bipolar was really not very descriptive of so it's, it's what someone goes through. No, but it's interesting because there in, in Bell Let's Talk Day, there is a tendency to talk just about mental health as a broad term. Yes. You don't see a lot of discussion about, at least I don't see a lot of discussion about the the nuances of mental health. And so the important piece here is is talking about bipolar disorder, disorder and, and creating that frame for people to understand. Yes. Uh, so the thing, too, is is that uh, people, depression is obviously, it's, it's rampant through society. Anxiety just, be, you know, anxiety was huge for absolutely everyone during COVID. And whether it was a small amount of anxiety you'd never experienced before, massive anxiety attacks, and we talked a lot about it during COVID. But people don't understand things like bipolar disorder. Um, And bipolar disorder one, which I had, was more severe mood swings. Um, And uh, I also had something that was known as rapid cycling. So rapid cycling is uh, ups and downs more often. So um, I think it's more than four times a year. 
And I got to the point where I was having mood swings during the day. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd be really depressed and um, many, many times just wanting to end um, my life and what I was going through. And then I would just get super happy, excited and in this major rush in the afternoon. But I also experienced this thing called mixed states. And I think this is really important for people to understand. A mixed state is when you take depression and you mush it together with that mania. And what you get is the down kind of negative feeling of depression with that high. And it becomes anger. So polar opposites. Polar opposites come together. They, you know, that's a good way. It bangs together and it results in anger. And we see a lot of that. And, and one of the reasons um, why I started the show Life Unscripted right. I had spent a lot of years talking to um, a group called Family Support Network, which is really important. And when, if, when I talk a bit about my story, my family was so important to me. But in, in the situation we're in now, and we see what's happening downtown, I really think it's important for people to understand that that person came from somewhere. They're not mentally ill because they want to be. And people who are living on the street and with a severe mental illness or mental illness and addiction, which we know goes hand in hand, they're there because they didn't get help or they got help and it didn't work for them. So if I go back to just a little bit um, back with my story, uh, it was interesting for me because I've always talked openly about my story and I thought I was, uh, this is going to sound weird, I thought I was a nice bipolar person, right? right? And I was a nice manic depressive. So... And, Previously, like I just to give context, you you worked for CBC for a number. Yeah, of Yeah, I worked for CBC. So I worked in I worked in news uh, radio actually for a lot of years, and then I worked for uh, uh, then Ontario Hydro. I moved to Ottawa. And I was working at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and that's when I became quite depressed. I was married at the time, and my marriage broke up, and I eventually literally ended up underneath my desk on the phone, calling my friend and saying, "Can you come and get me?" because I can't leave my office. I'm so just stuck. Um, and he did, and that, le- you know, that led eventually over the next six months to my diagnosis with manic depression. I ended up on long-term disability, and this was in around 1990. Now, um, now that would have been your first diagnosis? Like- no, I, I, had, uh, I had actually experienced depressions through my early life. And so and- uh, what was the youngest that you, that you recall... That it's like okay, this this I've I've got something that takes me down a. Well, the first time that I sought medical help for it, I was in my early twenties, and at the time there was a, it was kind of the in thing, you know, you felt really down in the winter, and they called it seasonal affective disorder, and you took an antidepressant for that, and on on you know usually you would come out come out of it, you know. For me, I would flip out of it very quickly, and that was a sign of bipolar but at the time I wasn't experiencing those really extreme highs you know me well you know what an excitable person I can be so it wasn't until literally 1990 the wheels fell off fell off completely and I went through uh, a couple of years where I was on and off work Um, I did some part-time work at CBC and in 1992 And this sounds like a long time ago, but as I was going through my story, I realized it doesn't matter. You can take that and put it into any 
particular time. But in 1992, I started uh, my hospitalizations, which was then the Clark Institute of Psychiatry is now part of CAMH. And for the next three years, they couldn't find a medication that worked for me. And this is another thing that a lot of people with depression and bipolar disorder, anxiety, not every medication works. Right. You can't just say, here's the pill, go for it. They can't do a brain scan and say, oh, here's the pill you need, go for it. So I was in and out of hospital. Um, I think I had something like 10 hospital stays, ranging from a day to a couple of months over over the next three years. And I, I, uh, I had um, right up to shock treatments. Shock treatments kind of worked, but I would have had to have one every two weeks for the rest of my life. And so the doctor said, hey, that's, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so a year ago, I thought, wouldn't it be a cool idea to get my medical records? Because I found out you can get medical records going back 30 years. So I contacted CAMH because I thought it's going to be so neat. You know, I'll see it and I'll see what happened to me. And um, now, when... Okay, so you say what happened to me. So when you, were you aware of what was happening to you at the time? Or was this a sort of a self-reflection that I want to figure out what was going on with me 20 years ago that I, I want to fill in the gaps? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, I did. I wanted a timeline. And I wanted to see what life was like for me then. So, but what did you think? life was like for you then well like, like i said at the beginning i thought i was a nice bipolar person <laughs> so that's person. an interesting so yep. the, the frame of reference looking back you thought i this was i was managing it well i'm not sure i knew i was managing it but i didn't think it was as bad as it was okay. right. uh, and i thought it would be fun to get my records because you do forget and so I, I, I ordered my records from camh and i got them on a pdf and it was 1700 and 51 pages long and I thought wow so how this is really cool I have 1700 pages (laughs) (laughs) so how do you how do you access so for someone out there who's listening and saying wanna that that may be something that I want to do how do you start that process of accessing your files well you get in touch with the particular hospital if you were in a clinical situation so you were hospitalized or you saw a doctor they are required to keep your medical records for 30 years okay so you can apply for those medical records going back 30 years and i was right on the cusp of getting those but my psychiatrist told me about it because i said to him i'm interested in knowing now what my life was like so he said you can apply and get your records hmm so was it a complicated process? No, no. I just contacted um, a CAMH administration, I think, and they said put in a request, and I put in a request. How long did it take? A month. That's it, eh? Yeah. Did it yeah. cost you anything? Well, you get the first twenty-five pages free from <laughs> CAMH. They're all the cover pages. <laughs> then it's a ten cents a page, and the woman said called me and she said I think it might be better for you. For 30 bucks, you can get the PDF because you've got more than a 1,000 pages. So I thought, okay, well, you better send me the PDF. And I got 1,700 pages. Granted, some of those are, you know, cover pages for things. But I started to go through it, and I found out things that I did that were so shocking to me that um, it, it, scared the living, it scared the living daylights out of me. Talk a bit about what it was like to start going through 
these files and you, you did describe it as fun. You thought it would be fun to access, but was that the journey once you started going through those 1700 pages? No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing but is, it's important is that, though. It was an important journey. You know, it is, it is. And, and I talked briefly with my doctor about it, as I said before the break. And he said to me, I think it would be a good idea to get the files. And honestly, People have said to me, oh, you should write a book, you should write a book, because I do have some funny stories. Um, so I thought, oh, I'll get the files, and then I'll know, and then maybe I'll think about it. And in in reading them, it's not that I don't want to tell the story, but it's like doing a book, or I just want to talk about it, mm-hmm. right? So when I got them, and I started to sort of wing through them, and you know this from any doctor appointment, right? They sort of give you the basics, you don't know what they actually write right. down in the file. So I started going through them, and one of the first things I found was that I tried to strangle a patient, a fellow patient, and that the doctors had um, talked to my parents. They had agreed to take me home because if they didn't take me home, they were going to put me on the locked ward. Right. I didn't know that. Right. I, thought, I never thought I was violent. And as I started to go through, there's really nothing good that happens in your life if you are ill enough to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. And we we can start with that, right? Nothing good is going on in your life. And I I went and I had another, you know, I read another page and it was that I was um, physically uh, aggressive, sometimes violent, verbally abusive, yelling, just randomly yelling abusive words. And I didn't know any of that, right? Because when you're in that phase, like when your brain is there, you don't know you're doing it. And so I stopped after one afternoon and I said to Robin, I can't do this. I'm so shocked by what I'm reading because I didn't know this was me, even though I had been saying for years, oh, I was very ill. I was very ill. I didn't know that that was where I actually, you know, to that level of. And if if someone's just tuning in now, struggling with bipolar one. Yes. And again, so when they're listening to you describe what was happening 20-odd years ago in a clinical setting, these are what you've uncovered through these medical records. Yeah, and I mean, I I read about um, suicide attempts that I had, that two that were, were serious attempts, and, and I thought they told me, you know, what of, right? And um, in one case, I, uh, I took a massive quantity of pills, which it turned out it's not a kind of pill that would kill you. But it wiped me out. I passed out in the middle of Young Street in Toronto. I was taken by police and ambulance to Sunnybrook. And I got so violent there that they restrained me. And, then, and this was all in your records? All in my records. And um, so obviously it wasn't always that bad. I mean, sometimes I was going into the hospital and I was severely depressed and I needed treatment for that. But those things are sort of okay. Um, so I was so shocked and I said, you know what, I'm going to stop. And this was February 2022. And I got in touch with Tom McConnell at the time who was here and he had helped me develop the show and I said you know I think I want to talk about this and he said yeah okay so let's work on it and and probably going to be months and we'll get this all together and a few days later I started to feel really upset and then I went to scared 
And I was so scared. And part of it was because I always would say, oh, if it weren't for my family, if it weren't for this, I would have ended up on the street because I smoked crack. I did all sorts of stuff during that period. And I've talked about this on my show. And I realized that that is absolutely true. That could, that could be me. And it scared me mm-hmm. because it doesn't mean it's not me tomorrow. Right. right? There's no guarantee that, that this isn't going to happen to me again. I have been stable for for many years but um and I do the things I need to do you know I do the things that I was taught my life was in was so disorganized I started doing cognitive behavioral therapy and that helped me just put back some of the the ease you know the normal stuff right get up at the same time go to bed at the same time even if I was quite manic and I couldn't sleep my doctor said you can't get out of bed you have to stay in bed so I learned to put some structure back in my life. And, and that's all I did. I had to get up, eat breakfast, eat lunch, ha- lie down and have a little bit of a nap, eat dinner, and then go to bed. And that's where I started. And I started to rebuild my life from there. And I still live that way. Mm-hmm. How, I, long, how long ago was that? Uh, I started cognitive therapy in 1995. Um, at the time, the clerk had said to my parents, there's nothing more we can do. So cognitive behavioral therapy? Yes. And so what is that for the listener? Uh, it's basically, it's kind of, you, you look at a situation and you say, what happened? Um, so today, strangely enough, even though I have my own radio show, I was anxious about this. So what's happening? I'm going to go in and I'm going to talk to Walter. Well, how's that making me feel? It's making me feel anxious and worried. Well, what is it that, that's making me feel that way? And you unpack it that way, and then you get down to what the cognitive error is. And for me, it was often all or nothing, black or white. Um, There are other things like fortune telling. If this is happening right now, that's what's going to happen, and it's going to be bad. So you learn those things, so then you learn to, when you get into a situation like that, if there's any kind of disturbance you're feeling, you go through that process. And, And in my case, after a lot of years of doing it, my brain just automatically did it in the background. Right. So I didn't know it was so it was it happening. So sounds like a, a bit of a reprogramming. Yeah. The, there was one point where you talked about in one of your life unscripted about simply doing the dishes. Like there are certain things that you do that are important throughout your day. It's about structure and then yep. building that structure in. And then in one of the, the pieces that you had talked about previously was it's not about your, your the, the, the doctor said it's not about the cure it's about building, rebuilding and giving a framework to something because something could come back at some point in time, but what you're trying to do is build the mechanisms that prevent it from coming back. Yes, But yes. it doesn't mean it won't come back. You're just building Yeah, yeah, the, and, the and, and then place. I hopefully, and what I did also at that time was I, I plotted my mood. So I had uh, an Excel file and, and put little dots. I had, you know, five. We worked out five was the highest I'd ever been. Five, uh, minus five was the lowest I'd ever been. And I had to try and keep my mood between two and three. And they were defined, mm-hmm. right? And I plotted those on a graph. So I could see if I was starting to go up because, you know, basically, um, Dr. Zaretsky, who's still my doctor today, said, if you get to three, if you get to a plus three, you're probably going to go high. Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to come. So we really need to work hard and you need to recognize that. Right. So right. I got pretty good at doing that. And, um, you know, I just, I, I, I'm obviously have been fairly stable for a long time. So I'm not as actively doing that. But it was like going back to university and doing a PhD, I swear. 
It was a lot of work. Well, it does. It gives you. It gives the listener perspective of when we talk about mental health, and you've indicated at the top of the show. There's no quick fix. There's not something that you just you snap your fingers and you do it. This is a lot of work. This is a, a and and having respect for that, I guess, is one of the pieces that are important because if we're going to talk about mental health and we're going to remove the stigmas, it's having respect and understanding for what people are individually going through. And as you noted, that there's people in our community that are struggling through mental health and that leads them to either decisions or situations where they're they're alone, they're they're isolated and they're in, in living in the rough. And one of the pieces that you talked about is being being scared of that and expand on how we as a community can do better to respond and or create supports for those who are living through mental health challenges. Well, one of the biggest problems that we have, and we go back to the health system, um, when we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, I was luckily, lucky enough to be able to do it under a hospital situation, so OHEP covered it. Mm-hmm. That's not the case anymore. Uh, now you most most cognitive or CBT is done with a psychologist, and that's not OHIP covered. So who can afford that? Right. Who can afford 125 bucks an a hour session. a yeah. session, which you probably have to go to at least once a week in the beginning to really get it, you yeah. know, to get it in your mind. So a who can afford that? But as we see the health system break down and go into crisis now, what's going first? Mental you health. know, it's mental health, right. and the government. The federal government and the provincial government in the three years of COVID talked a lot about it. Mental health, money, spending, programs. And I believe part of that was because so many people were experiencing levels of anxiety that, I I mean, the numbers were something like 65, 75% of people were reporting some level of anxiety that was was hampering their life. Um, My fear has always been and I've talked a lot about this on my show, is that when we came out of COVID, were people going to sort of, you know, the anxiety was going to die away and was, you know, normal everyday life comes back? Are we still going to be pushing as the public? Because that's the only way anything happens, right? So we only got a couple more minutes. I just want to go back to the unpacking of that information. What where do you go now? So you've got all this information, and it seems like you've gone back to it a couple times. Is there a point where that goes back into a box, and that has been a part of your life, and you now continue to to move forward? You know, I hadn't really thought about that till you asked me that question earlier this week. Uh, when I got the files, I phoned my sister-in-law, who was really involved, and I said, wow, I've got these files, and it's really upsetting me. And she said, why are you even looking at those? Yeah. Why would you even bother? Definitely. Throw them away. Delete it. And I said, well, I need to know from your perspective, what was it like? And she said, it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Get rid of it. Yeah. And I thought, no, 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 I can't. And when you said that to me earlier this week, I thought, okay, I know now. I know now yeah. enough. Yeah. I don't need to look at it again. I'm not deleting it, but I don't need to look at it again right now. A year from now, six months, next month, maybe. But I don't feel that need right now to do it. Interesting. Interesting. And, and so thank I, and, you. No, <laughs> thank you for uh, for Life Unscripted on 610 because it does allow us to shine a light on what is what is happening in, in the lives of individuals and in their families and, and in society. And as you so well have shared with your journey, 
the impact of your mental health has not just been on you. It's been on your, your, your parents, your, your siblings, the, the ones around you, your coworkers. And you've had the courage and the opportunity to share those stories both here today but also on Life Unscripted with so many other yeah. people. And so, Can I say something really quickly? Yeah. One more thing. People who are afraid to talk about their own mental health struggles, try it with you know some friends. If you've never talked, try it with your close friends. Try it with your family. I have never met a person that I know of who has said, wow, stay away from me. Everybody has somebody. Everybody. No. And the people so who have said. come on my show who've never spoken about it feel really good when they've talked about it and it's a relief. 